Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Welcome back to part two of my interview with neuro-ophthalmologist, Dr. Alberto Gonzalez. In this episode, Dr. Gonzalez discusses retinal migraine, eye findings seen in stroke victims, and how the examination of the pupils help diagnose systemic neurologic disease. If you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Let's talk about pupils. People that come in and one pupil is bigger than the other pupil, all of a sudden they have a big pupil. What does that mean? How serious is, is it if they have a big pupil and their eyelid is drooping? Talk to us about the different possibilities. Right. Um, one, and to link into what we uh, spoke before, one common uh, source of anisocoria that is called, you know, the difference between the diameters of the pupil. Um, it's migraine. Um, sometimes migraine can create, uh, especially during the crisis, you will see that one pupil will, you know, will be different than the other one or diameter will be different than the other. And most of the time, it, it's an easy diagnosis because it's usually linked to uh, the um, headache that comes after or with it. Sometimes migraine doesn't really express as a headache. And that is when the problem comes in because most of the time, it's what we call, um, it's a rule out diagnosis, right? It's, there is no really a a single ancillary test that can be pathognomonic or, or can help you make the differential diagnosis. Uh, but but it, most of the time is related to the, fortunately is related to the headache and you can um, counsel the patient, say, no problem, you can be like that. We should also start that it is normal to have a differential um, in pupil up to uh, uh, 1.5 to 2 uh, millimeters. If you have that difference, that could be completely normal and not necessarily be an expression of a, of a problem in your eyes or your brain. Another difference could be diabetes. It is well known that diabetes causes a lot of pupil, you know, uh, myopathy. Um, Cataract surgery, because of traumatic, that will fall into the traumatic, you know, um, uh, asymmetry in pupils. But, like you will said, you always must start with those causes that might put the life of the patient in danger, right? Like either stroke or tumors, which is the most, I would say, or, or aneurysm, any other kind of affection of the nerve that can affect the, um, the pupil size. It could be because you have like Horner syndrome, if you have any you know, issues in the, in, the, in the sympathetic pathway, or if you have like a, you know, a lung tumor, um, you can have stroke. If you have a third nerve palsy, you can, uh, like you will describe, you will have the tri, you have the pupil difference, you have drop in the list, and you have um, strabism. So depending on all this sign and symptom that come together with the difference in pupil, then you can um, differentiate. You can also use the uh, the reaction to the light. Uh, when is the pupil more different in the dark or in the light? When is the 
if if it is reactive or not. If it is reactive, it might be just a physiologic asymmetry. Or if it is a female, um, you can think about um, Addy syndrome, right? That tend to create those in the time change on the on the on the pupil because of the um, in, in, insufficient uh, motility of the of the muscle that right at the sphincter of the pupil. Um, so the different toxic, uh, like like you know, of course, drugs can create you know uh, midriasis, but most of the time is is bilateral. So different definitely uh, causes can affect this pupil asymmetry. What's amazing is how the eye and the body is connected. There's a lung tumor called a pancos tumor that could cause changes in the pupil and cause a Horner syndrome. If you could just quickly explain that, how the lung could be related to the eye. Yeah, what happened is that um, the, the eye, the, the, the way it works, the pupil works is two main functions, yeah? contraction, dilation. And, um, and each function is commanded or is executed by two uh, main muscles within the, uh, within the iris, the sphincter and the radial you know, muscle. Wing. These two uh, group of muscles are innervated or are connected to what we call two different um, um, group of, you know, uh, or nerve system, which is sympathetic and parasympathetic sympathetic, um, uh, system. And, and one of them, actually, the, the, the nerve goes down to the spine and it gets close to the apex of the, of the, of the lung. So when the lung, when there's a tumor in the lung, that like the pancreas that you just described, it can compress that pathway and it can affect the function of the pupil. Excellent. Now let's talk about some of the symptoms that could affect the eye from Lyme disease. Lyme disease, it's unfortunately a, 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 a very devastated, it could be very devastated disease. And, and probably one of the reasons is because different from many other infectious, um, it can be latent and can be in your body for many years before they express um, itself or have come up with symptoms. The Lyme disease can affect, uh, and the eye can affect every single, every single structure of the eye. But one of the most commonly affected is the optic nerve, and it can cause what we call um, op it's, it's a cause of one of the optic neuritis. But Lyme disease can also create what is called encephalitis. And the encephalitis, because of Lyme disease, can affect virtually any aspect of your body. So it depends on where the, uh, the focus on infection happens. If it happens in the, in the, um, in the stem, you know, stalk, then it can affect the eye movement. If it is on the optic nerve, then it can affect the vision of the, that specific eye. If it is on the motor, then you, you can have a paralysis. So depending on where that focus of, of you know, infection happened, then you will have different symptoms. So there is no actually a single symptom that you might have that might not be related to a Lyme disease because of the affection of the brain. And unfortunately, the eye and especially the optic nerve can be a focus, and the retina, of course, can be also a focus of, you know, of the infection that, as you know, um, it transmits because of the, you know, take on the, on the deal. And it is more common 
in the north is or the north of the country than actually the south. So it, it depends on all this uh, geographical also condition can also help you to um, pointing out. It's more affected the rural and the urban areas. So there are different um, information that you can get from the patient that can you know, direct you to uh, the diagnosis of the disease. In eye care, to help us with the diagnosis, there's a lot of technology that we use. Let's talk about the different technology used in eye care by optometrists and ophthalmologists. Let's start with our favorite, your favorite, the visual field, something you've been working very hard on. Take, talk to us about how the visual field is important and the next generation of visual fields that All Eyes is working on. True. The, the visual field um, is the, the perimetry, is the technique that allows the doctor to understand the status of the visual fields of a given patient. And by visual field, it's all that area of vision that we have surrounding the central vision. All this area, like for example, while I'm looking at you, I can, without taking my eyes out of you, I can see, right, my, you know, my bottle of water, I can see all the things in my office, right? And that's because of the visual field. Um, that it's a, it's a very, it comes with a very old phylogenetic, you know, development, especially from uh, where we were, we have to be very aware of the lions, right? So people have to be very, very cognition that there's coming. So any little movement will, you know, grab the attention and, and escape right away. So visual field is very, very important. It saves us from being, you know, uh, hit by a car when we're walking on the street. Um, so it's a very, very important vision that I'm uh, part of the vision that unfortunately is affected by many diseases like glaucoma, tumors, multiple sclerosis, endless. Many, many diseases affect the visual field, but very likely the one that I know the most are glaucoma, right? And, and tumors or, or ischemic disease of the brain. And these techniques basically that we use um, have been evolved, right, since, you know, the ancients that we can use just our fingers to understand what we call confrontation visual field to a manual tangent screen showing the page, a technician showing a little stimulus to the patient in a wall to a automated perimetry in the office, which is what it's been used the most in the last decades. Basically, the patient sits in a relatively uncomfortable position and uh, looked into a bowl and lights will turn on and the patient has to indicate when to turn, uh, when the light is seen. And that allows the device to automatically understand the status of the visual field. What we're doing different is that we're taking advantage of what is well known virtual reality or augmented reality or what we call in general mixed reality. And the advantages of this kind of technology is in, we can divide it in two those advantages for the doctor and the advantages for the patient. The most important, of course, is the advantage for the patient. And the first one is the comfortability. The patient now, instead of being leaned forward, very uncomfortable in a very static position, now they can relax and they can wear the headset and run the test in their more comfortable position they prefer. The second is that during the test, they don't have to be static. They can move. They can move their head without needing to stop the test. The other is that because everything is automated, 
we have within the headset all kinds of tutorials to help the patient understand what is this about? What is the, the test going on? That allows a more independence from the technician. And that means that now the patient has more time and less stress to do the test. When the technician is controlling the test, unfortunately, it is against time because the technician has to see all the patients, right? Now with this platform, there's more independence and the patient can do the test, not only at the office, but from anywhere, including their own home, which is one of the greater advantages of this technology. In, in the near future, the patient will use this at home we already started all the studies. We finished the feasibility with awesome results. And so we now are convinced that this can be used at home. The patient can run the test not only once or twice a year. They can run the test virtually every day if they want. You don't have to, but you can do it every day if you want. And that means something very important the increase, significantly increase in data, amount of data that now the doctor will have for a much reliable evaluation of the visual field, especially for the detection of progression, right? Sometimes, like you well know, when you are evaluating a patient with glaucoma, there is no definitive diagnosis, right? And you have to follow those patients on time and only when you detect a change is when you trigger all your uh, measurements, right? Treatment, so etc. Well, the earlier we can detect this progression, the better the probability to um, improve and avoid the disabilities. There's all those groups of advantages for the doctor. Uh, first, their quality of care increase exponentially because the patient compliance increases. You very know well that every time you tell a patient, hey, we need to do a visual field, their face goes like, ah, again, those. What we're seeing is a 95% of the patient, they go like, Oh, but we're going to do it with the cool stuff, right? With the virtual reality. And they actually happy to do so because they're very comfortable. There's no stressful experience anymore. So that is one of our goals. Change the perception the patients and doctors have about perimetry and many other psychophysical tests. There's a test very similar with macular degeneration the 4C home, which the patient takes two or three times a week to see if there's any change to see if a patient goes from dry macular degeneration to wet macular degeneration. How many times a week, or it would, it would be once a week, twice a week? I know you say they can do it every day, but what would be the recommendation? How often do you think a patient, if they can bring this instrument home, how often should they do it? And then the doctor, I assume, will get an alert if there's, if there's a progression. Right. It, it will depends on the disease that we're using the visual field for, of course. If, you, if you're a patient with glaucoma, stable glaucoma, that well-compensated intraocular pressure within expected levels, then probably once a month will be totally enough. If this is a new patient that just came to the office suspect of glaucoma, and you would like to create your baseline for that uh, perimetry, probably you wanna do it every week. If, if it's a patient with glaucoma, but it is not well compensated, if you know that the pressure is fluctuating, then you probably wanna do also weekly. If the patient is progressing, then probably you also would like to get more data. So it depends on specific kind of patient, for example, um, we have a group of patients also with a, that are getting injections within the eye. And the doctor will actually will like to see what is the behavior of the visual acuity 
and visual fields almost daily. Like once, once every other day, they want to understand how that vision progress because that will allow the doctor to understand when is the exact, the right moment to bring back that patient for the follow-up injection. So it changed depending on the disease. Let's say you have a patient with a brain tumor and the patient is going into a neurosurgical procedure. Then you probably would like to create a very basic, well-established visual field test and you will give the patient, let's say, two or three weeks before the surgery to do it almost every other day or, or every week at least to have that baseline and understand whether there is a problem after or not the surgery. So it, it, it depends. It's a relatively new technology that we are now learning more and more and more, especially about the frequency that we have to accomplish this but very excited about, you know, helping doctors and patients to improve the quality of their care. There's probably different types of programs and different types of tests, but the average test for glaucoma, how long will it take each eye and both or both eyes together to take the test? That's a very good question. When the perimetry was done at the office, there was a huge interest to decrease the amount of time expended on the test because two things the greater the amount of time you expend on the time more you know you can get tired you can get you know unfocused and and the quality goes down we know that but we also now now that there's a threshold of time that if you go beyond that then uh, the consistency and the reliability of the test gets affected. So in the office, it is accepted that between three, four minutes per eye is a relatively decent amount of time. We have that also in, in, in the home model, but at home, the timing of the test is not anymore a problem for many reasons. First, because you can stop and pause the test at any time and continue at any time, right? You're doing the test and you do, and then, honey, the dinner is ready. You stop the test, you pause the test, you go and have your dinner and you can finish the test tomorrow, no problem, right? So that, there's no limitations anymore. That's why we are not for that, for that reason and other very important, we're not pushing to make a test of like a one minute test. Having said that, this is another very important concept in eye testing and eye care, which is the personalization of the care. The current perimetry use a, what is called a normative reference data in order to understand what is the probability that a given result is suspected or not, right? And what we do basically is that we create a single model and everybody has to go through that single model for us to understand whether it's normal or not. We already know that that is not the case in real life. We know that every single patient progress or you know, the follow-up is completely different. So many specialties in medicine, especially oncologists, are going into what is called personalized medicine, which means that the most important is not your, the relationship between you and what is considered by the community as normal. It's comparing you against you to understand when there is a real time or when there's a real change in, in your progression. That's also a, a model that we are pursuing because it, it being proved to be uh, more efficient for the evaluation of the patients. 
Do we know the cost of this? If a patient is going to go home with one, it will be covered by insurance, or those are things that are going to be that are being worked out as we speak. That's a very good point. Um, actually, in January 2019, CMS came out with three permanent codes for what they call remote physiologic monitoring parameters. In other words, the CMS, the Medicare created the tools to reimburse the doctor when the patient, when the doctors evaluate those parameters remotely. So right now, there is already a vehicle to establish this kind of follow-up. And, and basically, it is a monthly payment um, that depending on how frequent you use the test can go from $52 to $160 um, if it is very frequent. And how about the patient having to buy the instrument? How does that work? It, it depends. Um, right now, um, the patients are um, acquiring the device. The cost for the visual H which is the home model, it's $799. It's less than an iPhone. But it's still linked to the Visual S, which is the home office model that the doctors acquire. And, and basically because this is not a test that the patient wants to do every time they want. It should be still a, a test that is prescribed by the doctor. So the doctor, through their platform, control what is the frequency and what are those the results of the, of the test that the patient performed at home. Let's talk about OCT, optical coherence tomography. How could that help in neuro eye disease? Oh, uh, the optical coherence tomography um, came up in the early 90s. Um, of course, it started in the 80s, but uh, the, the commercialization um, started in the 90s and has evol have evolved, evolved uh, through a way more uh, efficient uh, models. It came from time domain to spectral domain or Fourier domain that we also call. And basically what it does, it, it takes a picture, to call it that way, of the eye but not of the surface of the eye, but actually the eye in depth, right? And this kind of pictures allowed the, the direct visualization of the neurons within the retina. There are many neurons in the retina. There are the photoreceptors are neurons, the bipolars are neurons, amacrines are neurons, sorry, ganglion cells are neurons. So all the retina, it's, it's, it's composed by many neural components and we can directly observe and measure and quantify the thickness and the volume of those neurons within the retina. And we already have evidence that the OCT can detect decrease in the thickness of these neural components when you have diseases like Alzheimer, Parkinson, and many other neurologic, especially neurodegenerative conditions. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Thank you for tuning in to the Open Your Eyes podcast. If you like the video you're watching, please hit the like button. Also, hit subscribe for weekly new episodes of the podcast, along with pod winks and bonus content. All right, let's get back to the show. You feel that the eye doctor at some point will be the first doctor to be able to diagnose who's at risk for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease based on OCT? It is already. The evidence, it's there. What it is limited right now 
is the differential diagnosis. So we know that if you are a person with 80 year old, your pressure is normal, there's no signs and symptoms of glaucoma, and you have a decrease of the thickness of the RNFL, you probably will like to have that person evaluated by a, you know, either a neurologist or by a internal medicine in order to look for all those signs, you know, that of course, uh, it, it depends of course of the eye doctor, right, that's looking at. Um, if the eye doctor is familiar with all symptoms, they can somehow participate in the management or that side of the management of the patient. Most of the time, the patient will be referred, of course, to the, but the same that happens to Alzheimer happens very common to diabetes. It's so common right now, right? That diabetes are diagnosed by eye doctors because they take a picture and they, and, and this is the reason why Google uh, performed this amazing study about artificial intelligence to evaluate uh, pictures of the fundus of the eye for the fast and automatic detection of diabetic retinopathy. Not only that, now they can also detect if you are at risk to have a stroke just by a picture of the fundus. So you are very right. We or eye doctors in general, are going to have in their hands the tools to save many, many, many lives, to prevent the complication of those diseases just by a single evaluation of the eye. And, and I don't want to minimize the importance, but by single, I mean a, a given test an OCT, a fundus photograph, or a thorough, you know, examination of the retina. The eye doctor is a very powerful piece of primary care for prevention of systemic disease. And this explains exactly, exactly what you're speaking about. You mentioned a stroke that we could see at somebody's at risk for a stroke by looking with a photograph. Go into that a little more detail. What can we see? Um, before I explain that, I would really like to mention here um, your, um, your work. I was, um, in the last weeks, I was looking into all the materials that you have put together related to a very important concept which is putting together the eye with the rest of our body. Not only in the neurological way, but also metabolic way, nutritional way. So the job I will really, um, I'm very happy and, and very proud of you know, knowing you because I think you are doing a great job in putting together and linking this to a way which sometimes it's not okay, unfortunately, in, in, the, in the current community. So I think your job is very, very important and I would like to you know, congratulate you for, for what you're doing. Thank you for that. Um, the, the specific, um, signs and symptoms that um, the, all these algorithms are looking into it. It's most of the time related to the vascular aspect within the eye. So one of the advantage of the ophthalmoscopy or the fundus photography is that you have access to blood vessels, right? It's probably one of the few for not to say there's only few structures in, the, in your body that allows you the direct access to the vascular um, branches. And the status of those can prevent this kind of, of stroke, which are nothing but a vascular and blood disorder, right? So 
they can look for what, what is called um, embolism. Sometimes they have like little pieces of, of, of either cholesterol gas or many other um, systems that can be visible within the, uh, the branches. It can look into the diameter of the, of the blood vessels, the decusation of the blood vessels. So, so several signs, there are aspects and ischemic areas within the retina. Uh, we know, for example, that if you have a, a, an obstruction of the veins in the eye, that puts you at risk from the rest of the population to having a stroke. So there are many, many of these signs within the eye that can um, alert the doctor. The way this algorithm works are totally different. These algorithms are, and, and to be honest, I don't even know exactly how it does, <laughs> how it works, to be honest. It, but basically they looked at every single pixel within the, uh, within the picture. And not only they looked at those pixels individually, but the relationship with the rest. So it's a very, very complicated algorithm that our brain couldn't do it in at least in a voluntarily way, right? Um, but fortunately we have computers and very potent computer right now that can do this kind of algorithm and help us with the diagnosis. Talk to us about how we could use extended color vision to help us with diagnosis of different disease. Sorry, extended what? Color vision, using color vision. Oh, color vision, okay. Yeah, um, the uh, color, it's um, actually, um, for some reason, um, actually underutilized in the, unfortunately, in the, in the community. And um, the color, and the reason why it's simple, it's probably the function within the eye that we understand the least. Color, it's a very, very complicated mechanism or function of vision. You know, vision have, you know, different functions, right? We have the acuity, which is basically how small objects we can see. We have the visual field, which is what we explain, the extension of that um, area of vision. We have stereopsis, we have contrast, which is the difference between the luminosity of two different surfaces, and we have color, right? So color is just one aspect of the entire vision, but probably the one that we understand the, the least. There are, as you know, three main kind of neurons within the eye responsible for the management or responsible for the uh, capability of seeing uh, or seeing not to to bring the information to the brain about different color. It is very, um, and, and I don't mean in a disappointing way, I don't mean in a, uh, even in the, um, um, <laughs> I don't want people to be stressed because of this, but there, is no, there are no colors outside. Color is just an illusion of our, brain to enhance the vision. Sometimes we have, there are objects in, in the outside world that they have exactly the same luminance and we wouldn't be able to differentiate between these two objects unless we have that color information. So the color function it's another way that our brain evolved and, and, and have to understand and help us differentiating objects in the real world. And the way they're doing is basically we have these three neurons, three or photoreceptors that we know, we call, 
the elb, um, the you know green, um, red, and blue cones, and those cones and the combination of these cones allow us to detect those differences. When uh, we have color deficiency, depending on the color axis that is affected, then we can understand whether the problem is congenital, whether the problem is acquired. As you know, we have two main, the, the, the color function travels to the brain in two main axes, right? The red-green and the blue-yellow. If you have a red-green effector, which is the most common one, right? It's most of the time a congenital condition. You know, it's uh, up to 8% of the male population um, have, unfortunately, this vision, color vision disorders. And we can use simple tests like the Ishihara test, or we can go, you know, more complicated like Fansworth, Musen, Hugh test in order to detect that deficiency. Or you can use all the tests like the Farnsworth or the D-Panel D15, in order, which is sort of about, uh, just a variation of the original Farnsworth, and, um, and go into the blue-yellow axis that most of the time is an acquired condition, which is, by the way, another technique for evaluating perimetry, right? And the reason why we do this is not because the, these blue cones are more or less sensitive for conditions like glaucoma, is that there are very little amount of them in the retina. So if you have a disease that is affecting all of them, the blue yellows are going to disappear less, uh, faster. So we can still use that knowledge in order to detect this kind of condition. There are specific conditions. Um, there are not congenital, but hereditary that affects specifically um, these kind of, of photoreceptors. But we can use it to evaluate um, whether the problem is more in the macula, whether the problem is more in the optic nerve, so the color vision is a very, very useful tool for the evaluation of the function and, and also to understand the status and the degree of affection of the vision in these patients. To help us with earlier diagnosis of glaucoma, uh, the blue color vision, the, 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 can you just explain that quickly? Yes. Um, so remember we mentioned we have three main cones, right? The orthoreceptors uh, specify for light for day vision, right? Which is the, the red, green, and the blue. The red and green are many, many, many photoreceptors. They are probably like, I think it's about 90 to 80% of all the photoreceptors, if not more. The blues cones are very little. And, and those blue cones are connected to specific um, ganglion cells that, are, that form a pathway that goes to the laryngeal nucleus, which is a you know, structure within the brain. And that pathway is what we call cellular pathway. That pathway, it's probably 5 to 10% of the entire magnocellular, you know, and, 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 and parvocellular pathway, right? So those three, the conium is very little, which means that if you have a disease that is affecting all the ganglion cells, right? It affects, let's say you have, let's simplify this. Let's say you have 100 ganglion cells. And of those ganglion cells, 10 are blue, to, to use also simple language. 
if you have a disease like glaucoma that is affecting those ganglion cells and it's killing ganglion cells, let's say, and they are all sensitive the same, then you lose one blue and one red, one blue and one green, one blue and one red. At some point, you still have 60% of the reds and, and, and green and zero blue. So if you have a test that specifically look for this <clears throat> kind of ganglion cell, you can early on detect the disappearance or even earlier, the dysfunction of those group of cells. And that is the principle of the swap perimetry or short wavelength automated perimetry. The evaluation, the specific evaluation of those group of cells looking for early signs of glaucoma, but it's not only specific for glaucoma, it can be um, done for other neuropathies that affect the, uh, the visual pathway. Let's turn our attention to contrast sensitivity. How can we use that to help us with diagnosis? Contrast sensitivity is my favorite of all the tests. Contrast sensitivity is the basic of all the visual functions. It's the basic for visual acuity. It's the basic for perimetry. It's the basic even for color. It's just that it's a different contrast. But contrast sensitivity, probably what we more commonly know as contrast sensitivity test, it's basically to show the patient optotypes or letters or figures that their contrasts compare with the background changes. In other words, you can start with a very, very dark A letter in a very, very white background and then degradate that A letter or E letter, any letter, from very dark black into gray degradation that get close to the white of the background. The closer or the smaller the difference between the letter and the background that you can detect, the better your contrast function and the better your function in general. Unfortunately, and for a reason that I don't understand, um, it is not um, a cover test, unfortunately, by you know, CMS. It's not covered by um, all the uh, pairs. And in my opinion, it should, because it's the most sensitive test we have, much better than visual acuity, much better than color. It's one of the functions that we lose early on when we have virtually any disease in the eye or the optic nerve. There's now a test for measuring pupils. So the pupil response, how important could that test be and helping us, should we use it as a screener on everybody or should we just use it when we suspect a disease if somebody has a disease? The, as you know, the, the pupil measurement is part of the general examination. So having a machine that does that for you automatically and can extract the subjectivity of the observer, it's definitely a huge advance. And um, in my opinion, it should be actually part of the regular examination because sometimes our subjectivity or the environment where we are stimulating or the time that we have to, to examine the patient, sometimes 
those examinations are not can miss very subtle changes. But even more important, even if we make a very, very conscious examination, our subjective examination of the pupil can miss small changes than the machine can definitely detect. So I would say that in an ideal world, this should be a examination that this should be part of the every patient routine examination um, in your office. Excellent, because it's going to be a lot more sensitive than the doctor could do it. And of course. It's going to pick up things from glaucomas to brain tumors to, to who knows what, because this is new technology that has been improved on quite a bit, and the new models are starting to come out. Correct. And it is worth a comment that is totally independent of how good or bad is the doctor. Right. It, it's a human um, limitation. Um, it's a really human limitation that we have that we can, we are limited on the quantification. We have a very subjective, of course, analysis of the world that is around us. The last test I want to talk about is something you're a world expert on. You spent a lot of your life involved in is electrophysiology. Can you talk about how electrophysiology can help us with early diagnosis to be able to help our patients? Right. The electrophysiology, it's a very, very old um, technique. It's a very old science, probably one of the oldest in the um, in neurology and, and ophthalmology and optometries. Um, the electrophysiologist basic, the, uh, is based on the principle that every single function in our body is commanded by electricity. We can speak because our brain sends electricity to the tongue and the tongue book. We can see because we can, because our brain, our eyes collect the visual information, convert that light information into electricity and send that electricity to the brain for the brain to understand. So, and, and because we are alive, because that electricity make our heart pumps, right? So electricity, our body works fully based on electricity. So if that is say, if that is the basic of all our function, measuring that functionality will allow us to understand how well our, our um, body is working. The same way a cardiologist will do an EKG, an electrocardiogram in a patient to understand whether it is an arrhythmia or whether it's an ischemic condition or a blockage, whatever happened in the brain, the same we can do it in the eye. We can stimulate the eye and collect that electrical information either from the brain or directly from the eye in order to understand and quantify the function of this to or the entire visual pathway. And the advantage of the electrophysiology is that like the pupillometry or video pupillometry is that it's objective, right? It doesn't depend on what we call the double objectivity. It does not depend on neither the subjective response of the patient nor the subjective evaluation of the doctor. So that is definitely an, a huge advantage. Um, that doesn't mean that it is more or less important than other tests. Um, I, um, I believe that subjective tests are still very important. And a good example is the autorefractors, right? We have autorefractors. We have a way, a, a tool to understand exactly the refractive error that we have in our eyes right? Since probably the 70s. I think I, if, I, I, well, I was very young, but we have had autorefractor for decades. 
and we still ask our patients, better with this, better with this. And the reason why you do it is because we all perceive the word different and we cannot put it all together in a single unique way. You have to take into account the subjectivity because as you know, vision is not only our eyes, vision is also our brain. So tell, talk to us about the difference between the VEP and the ERG and what they could tell us that's different within the optometrist's office. So VEP and ERG are um, very good techniques for the evaluation of the brain and the eye respectively. So if you do an ERG or electroretinogram, Basically, what, would, what you're doing is you are placing a sensor close to the eye and collecting the electrical activity that is developed within the eye because of the visual stimulation. The visual volt potential is exactly the same, but instead of collecting that electrical activity from the eye, we collect that activity from the brain. And what that allows us is to understand, for example, how long it took for that information to travel from the photoreceptors in the retina all the way to the brain. And this is a very important information because diseases like multiple sclerosis will delay the conduction of that information. In fact, at some point, the VEP was evaluated to be part of the McDonald criteria for the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis because it's so important for the sometimes the subclinical detection of this kind of disorder. In other words, you can have 20-20 of vision and still have an abnormal visual valve potential if you have an optic nerve disorder like multiple sclerosis. So those are the difference between the visual potential and the electroretinal ray. One study, the ERG study, or collect the information of the eye, and the other one collects the information of the brain. So again, how the eye and the brain are related, it's just, you know, together. So. To be a good eye doctor, you also have to be a good doctor of the whole body, including the brain. So I really want to thank Dr. Alberto Gonzalez for joining me today. Uh, you made a very complicated topic very simple. And thank I want you. to thank you for that and spending I hope. so much of your time and, and giving of your time. I really appreciate it. If somebody wants to find out more about you and all eyes, how can they do that? Oh, it, it will be a pleasure to connect to anyone interested, whether from the doctor community or patient community. Um, we, they can find us at alleyes.com, O-L-L-E-Y-E-S.com. And uh, that is the website of our company where you can find all the technology that we're developing and especially the mission that we are you know, involved with, which is bringing efficiency and much greater quality to the eye care. Again, I want to thank Dr. Alberto Gonzalez for joining me today. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Thank you very much, Kerry. Thank you very much. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with neuro-ophthalmologist Dr. Alberto Gonzalez. In this episode, Dr. Gonzalez discusses retinal migraine, 
eye findings seen in stroke victims and how the examination of the pupils helps to diagnose systemic neurological disease. If you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews, and please leave comments. Take two. Welcome back to part two of my interview with neuro-ophthalmologist Dr. Alberto Gonzalez. In this episode, Dr. Gonzalez discusses retinal migraine, eye findings seen in stroke victims, and how the examination of the pupils help diagnose systemic neurologic disease. If you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews, and please leave comments.